This podcast was recorded during the great coronavirus COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. Welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Welcome to episode one. So glad that you have downloaded it. There are many Beatles appreciation podcasts out there, and I just want to clear the deck and say that this one owes a great debt to the fantastic I Am The Egg Pod with Chris Shaw as the host. I highly recommend that you give that a listen. Uh, That podcast features mostly British writers and artists, not surprisingly, as uh, Chris is British and it is produced in Britain. I thought, though, when I was listening to it and enjoying it, I would love to do a podcast like that with Canadian music people. So here we are. My guests today are Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps from the iconic Canadian band Blue Rodeo. So you have Jim, co-founder of one of the greatest bands in Canadian music history, Blue Rodeo. With writing partner Greg Keeler, he has given birth to so many classic tunes. Try, After the Rain, Till I Am Myself Again. He sold over 5 million albums with Blue Rodeo alone. He has also released five solo albums and is already a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and an officer of the Order of Canada. Jim's latest album is Countrywide Soul. Uh, You should visit Jim at jimcuddy.com for all things Cuddy. And then we have Colin Cripps, a heck of a guitar player. Power playing, Dick Dale-styled surf guitar, 12-string, all in the repertoire. He has played, written, and produced material with Brian Adams, Colin James, Kathleen Edwards, Big Wreck, Sarah McLaughlin. He has his own thing going Going with James Robertson and CNC Surf Factory. And he's been by Jim Cuddy's side for all of his solo albums and the lead guitar player with Blue Rodeo since 2013. You can visit Colin at colincrips.com and find him on all the social medias. But today, uh, you guys are here as Beatles fans. Gentlemen, thank you so much and hello. Oh, thanks for having us. It's great. Love talking Beatles. We do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start off then. Uh, how did the Beatles come into your life? And what's your first memory of the Beatles? Okay, so I am the, you guys are too young to have, you are secondhand Beatle fans, as you know. You got them when you were, you know, said, oh, that happened last decade. So I'm the right age. So that when, when you know, when they're, uh, when they're on TV, so when they're out in 63, I'm, uh, I'm seven years old. And then I just, we just go from there. So for me, 
they were the first, I mean, I had listened to AM radio, but they were the first um, music I heard that I realized was just for us, was just for young people. And it, I mean, I, I can't tell you how exciting it was seeing them on Ed Sullivan. And they were our Christmas records every every year. I mean, we always got the, well, I can tell a story later, but we, the first record we got was a false positive. But after that, we got all the right ones. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, what about you? Well, my, uh, I, it, funny enough, yes, I agree with Jim that I'm, uh, I'm just uh, young enough that I missed the actual, um, you know, the real thrust of their popularity in the 60s. But I do remember very distinctly, um, my parents used to buy the records. And when I was five years old, my dad got what was then, a, you know, this new technology a cassette, ta uh, cassette deck. <laughs> not a tape, not a reel to reel, a cassette deck. So, and then, and so in this such this setup, they'd have a record and then you could have the cassette deck and you could actually record, you know, the records to the cassette deck and you could also sing along to them. So when I was six years old, my mom, they had gotten Rubber Soul. And I remember distinctly the first song I ever really remember singing or trying to sing was uh, Norwegian Wood with my mother in this little, you know, Ampex um, cassette deck. So that's my first history of it. And then I do remember actually, as Jim mentioned, you know, uh, my first Christmas record that I remember was Abbey Road. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, Jim, you brought up an interesting point uh, in that you experienced the Beatles firsthand. I experienced kind of the echo of the Beatles, yeah. and I guess it was a different thing. Oh, I think it was. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm just kidding about getting the echo. I mean, I know that you guys are, were there when like you were you were children when they were still a band. So that's a lot different than hearing about them later after they weren't a band. But I think that there was something, uh, there was something to be, there was something extremely exciting about feeling like you were part of, of a, a huge generation of kids that were experiencing this without necessarily their, their parents' approval. I mean, we watched the Beatles because we watched um, Ed Sullivan. I'm not, I guess my dad would have, would have turned it on, but had there been, you know, 60 minutes or something on at the time, we might not have. But it was a phenomena, and it was the first phenomena that wasn't just a toy, that was just for kids. So there, there was there was something uh, meaningful about that. And, and I certainly look back, you know, I always bug my own children that they'll never have the kind of childhood I did because they don't have the social and music revolution that uh, that sprung up. So all the good things are over and I hope they enjoy their lives. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's, it's always, uh, I've just started doing this and it, it's always interesting when an artist agrees to do it and I sort of go, I wonder what album they're going to pick. And, and sometimes you're surprised. So I had Stephen Page on and, and he picked Tug of War, a Paul McCartney solo record, which, which surprised me a little bit. Uh, Dave Bedini, Rio Statics, picked Sgt. Pepper. So not, not a massive surprise because I think you can hear a bit of that experimentation in some of their tracks maybe. Uh, Stephen Stanley, uh, Lowest of the Low, Magical Mystery Tour. 
Interesting. Now, now, you guys, I was trying to guess what album you guys would pick, and I was sort of coming down. I, I didn't know whether you'd go sort of white album with the kind of that indie sound to it or whether you'd be help Rubber Soul area. You chose Rubber Soul. Why did you pick that, guys? Go ahead, Carl. Well, you know, we both agreed that it's a bridge album, and I think in the in the sense that it that it really defines the 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 evolution of them moving further away from the direct influences that they had from their earlier records, and it also, I mean, the songs are, um, I mean, they're by and large all classic songs. And uh, the artistry and the craftsmanship in the writing, as well as the recording techniques that they also have, they evolved more and more to uh, make that record sort of the significant record for me. Right. Now, Jim, did you guys discuss it or was it immediately where you went? I think that we briefly discussed it, but we both we both figured Rubber Soul would be would be the one, and I and I think for a lot of the reasons that that Colin said that it, it that it it's it's the transformative record for them, and and for me since it's all lodged in in childhood memories, I remember thinking when it came out and hearing Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out and then hearing the record that Beatlemania was different now. It was no longer about the mop tops and and uh, and the suits. It was something different, and it somehow was reflective of other things in the culture. It was sort of reflective of hippies. It was it was reflective of of music of folk music a little bit that was definitely piquing my interest. And so all of it sort of came at the right time. I loved the look of acoustic guitars and acoustic instruments. And I, and I love the Beatles look, you know, I like the mop top stuff too, but even after three years, it was, it was great to see a change. Mm -hmm. So it was significant for me. Yeah. And they, they even look different on the cover. It's, it's the first cover where the word Beatles didn't appear somewhere. And you just, you have, you have those four faces kind of looking down and they've all got those, uh, the brown cord jacket on and the, the mop tops. They look tired to me, uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which. Well, that's also the record where I see them starting to re like visually, they really start to separate and become their personas really start to define themselves. Because before then they were sort of, you know, they all wore the same suits and they all had the same hair relatively. So that was also a distinction that the personalities in there as a, you know, as a whole were really sort of um, decided and, and, and you know, um, they flourished in that year. So, yeah, there was also this sense that, you know, help had been the poor cousin of Hard Day's Night. And as great as the songs were, it was... It, there was this just this feeling that they were running out of steam a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Rubber Soul happens and all that stuff's put aside and there's a brand new era at which they are again the greatest. So yeah. it was... You know, it was thrilling. Well, let me give you some context, and uh, and then we'll start to go through it. So it's 1965, busy year for the Beatles. I think they all were back then. Still, still kind of in the Beatlemania thing. They're all in their earlier mid 20s. So in the early part of the year, February, they start shooting the movie Help, as well as recording the album of the same name. Shooting goes on in Austria, Bahamas, and in London. Takes place through February, March, and April, and the first couple of weeks of May. Now. 
concurrent with shooting the movie, they're recording the album. So they're doing both at the same time. Then in June, at the end of the month, they kick off a 13-day, 8-city, 15-performance tour of France, Italy, and Spain. They come back home. They have about a month and a half off. Then it's off to the U.S., 16 days, 10 cities, 16 shows. Uh, that was the one where they played Shea Stadium for the first time, 55,600 people with amps that you probably guys probably have in your rehearsal hall now. <laughs> They're probably, <laughs> probably bigger than the ones they had. Then they come back to the U.K. They get their MBEs from the Queen at Buckingham. Palace at the end of September and then on October 12th 1965 they walk into EMI Studios to start recording their second album of the year so still about two and a half months to go in the year you've shot a movie made an album played 31 shows in 18 cities in Europe and the US and now okay boys time to make your second album of the year and you have about a month to do it now as creative types can you, for people listening, put that into perspective from the standpoint of a creative person? I mean, Jim, how deep does the well have to be? Well, not just the we, you know, not just the well being deep, but also the fact that they had to change gears. I mean, Norwegian Wood is not like Help. It's not. It's it's completely different. So maybe these songs had been germinating a while, or they certainly. I mean, they were certainly thinking that they couldn't keep up the touring pace anymore. I, I've never read anything that they didn't, couldn't keep up their recording pace, but they couldn't keep up their touring pace. So I would assume that at this time, they were, they were, just, um, they were just oozing with songs and oozing with ideas, and that, and that what they needed was the right um, setting to make them in. And, and the setting couldn't be, let's write a bunch of hits for a movie or let's write... 10 singles and, and carry on. Um, I think it's significant that uh, it was first or second record that was only, um, only original songs. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so okay. I'll, you know, and also that there's two more songs on the British release than the American release. And uh, so they must've just, they must've just been firing, you know, all cylinders, just writing and thinking about stuff. And, and obviously being such creative guys, they, they wanted to expand their orchestra too. They didn't want to be just Rickenbackers and, and Hofner bass and, and, uh, and uh, you know, just a simple quartet anymore. So I'd assume that they were champing at the bit to get to this moment, even though it just still seems in October they go in and by December it's released. That's still amazing. But they must have been champing at the bit to do it. Colin? Uh, well, you know, there's not much I could add. I, I agree with everything Jim says. Uh, and I... Uh, the one thing I would add to it was um, that uh, the creative thing that, that, you know, like I think they were, yeah, running, they were running on all cylinders at, at that point. I think that, you know, as, I mean, we can't compare ourselves literally, but in some respects, you know, when we do, we have really busy years and things just kind of happen after each other. There's something about how you, you organize yourself to compartment as best you can for those events because it is it is it's still uh, part of what we do is that we go and tour and then once we finish touring we have to start thinking about making a record well in between those two times there's usually creative ideas that are being sort of you know germinating and there's things that are happening so you're always in that sort of state of 
thinking that you're going to go from one step to the next and to the next. And that's kind of the routine you build. Well, you think about what they were doing for those. I mean, at that point, they've been doing it for four years, pretty much solid. So that I think that was part of just how they managed, you know, the, um, the responsibilities to what they had to do. And uh, the other thing I would have said is that in, uh, in the early part of 1965, it's a little technical thing, but I think it might lend itself to the idea of what sort of germinates with the way songs come about, is, you know, 65 is the first year that they actually started implementing the use of two tape machines to record. So before that, they had the primary four-track machines and then the machine, and they would do things, they would organize things very much in that way that, that they were limiting themselves as far as what they could accomplish on tape. So I think that also helped them think and start to, it must have helped them start to think more and more about experimentation and more about how they could do things that they otherwise couldn't have done in the way that they wrote songs, right? Or the way that they developed the songs. So maybe that helped in, you know, in sort of imparted some of that idea into the way, the way they, they changed in terms of the writing. Right. It's also the year that they discovered psychedelics, you know, for the first time. So, yeah. Colin, I'm disappointed you didn't have more technical uh, details there on the, <laughs> on the tape machines and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm trying to keep on the nerdiness. No, no. I'm su- I surprised he doesn't have pictures of it. <laughs> I love how it starts to glaze over just enough that I get <laughs> No, no, I, 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 hey, I love it. That's, that's why podcasting is great. But it, I guess my point being, they didn't just turn out two albums. The two albums were Help and Rubber Soul in one year, which is... Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I phenomenal, mean, yeah. So Rubber Soul is the sixth studio album recorded by the Beatles after Help and before Revolver. It was recorded from early October until early November in 1965, released on December the 3rd, 1965. This was the last year in which the Beatles would record and release two albums in the same calendar year. Now, worth mentioning that the track list on the Canadian and U.S. version of Rubber Soul is different from the UK release, which is now the official release and the one we're going to be talking about. In the Canadian US release, they removed Drive My Car, Nowhere Man, What Goes On, and If I Needed Someone. And then they added I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love. So, side one of Rubber Soul, North American version, is I've Just Seen a Face... Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me, Think For Yourself, The Word, and Michelle. The UK version was Drive My Car, so that's a different lead-off track. Norwegian Wood, You Won't See Me, Nowhere Man, which is not on the North American version, Think For Yourself, The Word, and Michelle. Side two North American version was It's Only Love, Girl, I'm looking through you, in my life, wait, and run for your life. The UK version was What Goes On, so that's not on the North American version. Girl, I'm looking through you, in my life, wait, if I needed someone, and run for your life. 
Now, having said all that, guys, can you imagine? This has always struck me as strange. You have a group like the Beatles selling millions of records, and the record company comes in and basically cannibalizes your records by deleting tracks and adding tracks. Now, surely that must have ticked them off, don't you think? You know what? I think that America was right. I think that uh, starting the record with I've just seen a face instead of drive my car uh, is better. I mean, drive my car is fun song, but it's a silly song. And, you know, it's 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 a novelty song. And I've just seen a face is the song like I think maybe somebody had the wherewithal to say this is a change for the Beatles. And I want to announce that change with the very first song. Drive my car doesn't announce a damn thing. And I, I, the only thing I feel, I feel sorry for George because it's his song that gets, that gets the heave-ho at the end. If I need a song, which is, which is a good song. Weird message, but good song. That's an interesting skew on it. Was uh, maybe that's what the the record company was thinking was to 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 give it that kind of a start. Now, uh, you referred to it earlier about things going on in the world at that time. Uh, John Lennon once said, "He said Rubber Soul was the pot album, Revolver was the acid album." Would you guys agree with that that approach? Sure. I I, I mean, I think that obviously something had had opened their minds to other possibilities. And there, it's not a particularly um, hallucinogenic record, Rubber Soul, where Revolver is definitely a hallucinogenic record. You know, Rubber Soul is is the is the is the uh, the sensual version of what it feels like to make music. So, and that's pot, right? That's like this the intensifying feelings, and and uh, so all of a sudden, acoustic guitars become ravishing sounds, and and. So I, I get that. I mean, it's still amazing. It all happened within a matter of months anyway. Well, it's also the, I think, I mean, that's, that's probably the first drug that they were introduced to, you know, as a, as an evolution of experiencing drugs. That was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, and McCartney says uh, in the interview I see anyways, he says, neither of those albums were actually recorded under the influence. Uh, on Pepper, we started to use stuff in the studio, but on the earlier albums, we'd have been using those drugs socially. So in that sense, the drugs informed what we did. Uh, and he says, uh, we could never have written all those songs if we were always stoned. So he kind of makes that clear. So let's get this going. We will take the vinyl out of the album sleeve we're going old school it's vinyl and let's put this on the turntable and we are going with the british version so it is cut one side one drive my car that's the girl what she wanted to be she said baby can't you see i want to be famous i start the screen but you can do something in between baby you, you know one of the things that musicians car. feel is that it's really difficult to make better guitar sounds than than the Beatles. Now, this is, a, to my mind, a throwaway song, but the, the guitar sound is, is amazing. It's just, they just knew how to buzz that thing out enough so that yeah. it had a lot of bite and, uh, and yet wasn't all blown up. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's, it, they still are the gold standard for a lot of guitar sounds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and and you know, as you study those songs, uh, and you, you know, I'm guilty of breaking them apart, listening to them as a whole. You know, there's all these different facets you can experience with with great recordings, and the Beatles certainly set a gold standard. 
So when you listen to just the guitar parts, because as a player, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, this was the guitar used. This is probably the amp. This is probably the way it was mic'd. And, um, and then you realize that there's, um, you know, you can get pretty close, but there's always this sort of magical, uh, so there's magical sonics in some of those tracks and in the parts that, 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 you know, if I was again, talking slightly technical, you know, they did manipulate sounds for sure. Even, you know, earlier on, they probably were more conservative about it because it was more about the idea of, of getting quality recordings. Um, and that part of that was that, you know, it was all naturally done and they might add, they might enhance those uh, sounds with, you know, or cut sounds with frequency, you know, like with EQing. But but by that point, I'm pretty sure that they also, they, they started driving things a little bit harder. And they, they there's a sound that comes out of that gear that um, I've experienced personally. And, um, and that's a, a really great testament to that, is that that guitar sound is, it's a combination of them, boosting top end in the eq and, and a certain amount of compression coming out of the out of the signal into uh what they you know is called an rs uh um 120 compressor that they used anyway so that's that to me is also a study in itself and when you listen to some of those songs and you're fortunate enough to get the isolated tracks which i've also been and, you know, we've lost, Jim and I have listened to stuff. I played them. We've had stuff over the years where you can actually hear the separated tracks, you know, you hear these sounds and you're like, it sounds incredible, you know, on its own. And then you can hear these, you know, manipulation treatments to them. So that's a great song for that. I think it's been treated for sure. Well, from what, yeah. from what I've read, heavily influenced by Otis Redding's Respect, so it has that similar, yeah. the riffing lines on bass and low guitar, which apparently Harrison was really into uh, Otis Redding and that song at that time. And he and McCartney worked really hard on that sort of bass and, and low guitar thing. So is that is that what the distinctive sound is? Well, I think it's also in the top end. Like there's this, when the, as Jim suggests at the beginning, you know, the opening riff, it just cuts. Like it's just got this cutting poppy sound that but it sounds still sounds musical it doesn't sound harsh you know and that was always the thing i i always went to is how do they get it to sound so like cut so well but it's not harsh it's still very musical it was recorded uh it's the first beatles session to go past midnight and i had written in my notes i wanted to ask you do you prefer to work late at night as an artist, the way the Beatles in their prime seem to, they'd go in and start their sessions at 10 at night and they'd work right through. Is, is there some special magical thing to that? Or would you just assume be in bed at that hour? Well, uh, first of all, there's, there's a couple of things. When we were in Abbey Road and the, you, you get, you see the, these things, you know, those guys were still signing in and out. I mean, they were still definitely institutionalized by, by Abbey Road and by the, by the, uh, by the powers that be. So, the idea that we were working late was they, they felt like bad boys, you know, Oh my God, we're, we're working past midnight and, and, and we have to keep an engineer here and this is going to be all complicated with the union. I think that's, that's amazing. Cause we've Colin and I have never experienced that studios are 24 hour operations and uh, you come and go whenever you want. And that's always the way it's been for our, our career. 
Um, you know what I, I've experienced for me, I'm, I'm not, I don't particularly like going really late, but I, I work with people that do like going very late. So what I like and what I think is best is a prescribed time. So whatever that time is, I'd say 10, 10 hours is about what you can do productively. You can certainly stretch it out, but if you're stretching it out, there's usually some OCD reason that's not necessarily being it's not necessarily going to come to fruition, you know? So I think 10 hours is about all, all, all that you can do. And, I mean, you know, having read the Mark Lewison book, the Beatles were incredibly disciplined. They, 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 they did things. I mean, when you realize that they, when an hour later they were doing tracks, you know, they were doing take 78, 78 takes in, in an hour. Like how, how do they do that? So they were really driven and they really knew oh what they were trying to do. And I doubt they wasted a lot of time, perhaps towards the end they did. But that that period of time is very brief, you know, at the end. It's very brief where they they don't have any restraints and they can do whatever they want. I, I don't want to get too far down a, a wormhole here, or actually maybe I do, but Jim, have you, have you recorded or been in Abbey Road? Yeah, we were we were there, I don't know, two two or three years ago, and we had a tour. Actually, you know, it was a time when they were doing uh, the live from Abbey Road Sessions, and Blondie yeah. was doing her session. So we sat in on that. It, it's it's truly amazing. And, and I have seen this in, in movies. I have seen this. I've read about it. And it was, it, it's chilling to, to see. And also how stupid it is. I mean, it, it's dumb to have a, 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 the control room way up there. It, it, you lose all contact. And so, and I've always been fascinated by how the Beatles operated under a system that was so tight and made them slightly powerless, even though they were the biggest, most popular band in the world. So we'll move on to cut two, <clears throat> side yes. one. Uh, cut no, one, really. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 sorry. No, we're in the drive, Norwegian wood, sorry. Version one recorded the first day that they started work on on sessions for Rubber Soul, and uh, not unlike Drive My Car, a completely different song, but in that there's sort of a double entendre meaning there. You know, Drive My Car. There's the punchline with uh, with Hey, well, I don't have a car yet, but when I get one, you can drive it for me. And then with Norwegian Wood, it's No, the guy's not sitting around warming himself by a fire. He's he's burning the house down and leaving. Uh, oh, so you think that too? Yeah, well, that's that's. I oh, I was just going to say that I was always under the misconception that he lit a fire to burn the house down and left, but I don't think that's true. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I thought it, that he's that he is just sitting there in front of a fire, contemplating what has just happened, which apparently is this right. infidelity. Right. I don't know if you think that he lit a fire. Maybe that's true too. I mean, maybe that is true. Yeah, I, I'm just in, in an interview that that I saw with McCartney. So McCartney says um, it's it's a song about John trying to pull a bird. It's about an affair that he had, and then <clears throat> McCartney goes on, and the end of the quote is: "In our world, the guy had to have some sort of revenge because she sent him off to sleep in the bath. It could have meant I lit a fire to keep myself warm, and wasn't the decor of her house wonderful? To your point, Jim, but it didn't." 
It meant burn the house down as an act oh. of revenge, and we left there and went off. <laughs> oh. So that, oh my but, God! But no, I'm, I have I, been under the impression right to this moment that oh. I was wrong with my childhood impression that he. No. I thought that was fascinating. I'm listening. I think he burns the house down. Wow. She was so nice to him yeah. and he burns the house down. I no. never ever associated that with the end uh, of the song. No. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm with you guys. I was the same. I thought, well, you know, he slept in the bath and then he, he got up and he, he had a fire after she left for work or whatever. And then I read that McCartney interview and I was what? Now, hold on. My story is I thought he burned the place down. When I first heard it, that's what I thought. And it was only subsequently that people told me that's so stupid. He didn't, he just lights a fire, warms himself and doesn't Norwegian wood either burn well or it's the, it's the, the facing. It wasn't, you know, so then I thought, oh, I, I don't know where I got that arsonist uh, version of that song. Well, you but were right. Until right now, I guess I was right. Yeah. You were right. All you doubters. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and Colin, your, your read wasn't that to start with. Completely no. I'm, I'm, you know, I thought it was the blissful ending of the song where he, you know, he'd had this wonderful night, and then the next day, you know, she's gone, and he lights a fire to warm himself. It's totally, like, what? he just had, oh, you know, he had an affair with a mysterious Norwegian woman. So she's I don't know. Nor- I didn't get that at she's all. Norwegian because she has Norwegian wood in her place. I, I, Are I you just, a racist? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it, interesting musical thing here. So they, they did a first version, weren't happy with it. The second version was way heavier, and they added the, the sitar intro, uh, heavy sitar, no bass, no sitar, mainly acoustic. And then on take four, which is the one that we know, you hear the sitar was dubbed in after the rhythm track was, was laid down. Now, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you guys. Colin, extensive experience as a producer as well as a player, and, and, and Jim, uh, as musically literate as they come. Have you ever completely scrapped a version of a song that was done like they did with, and, and said, we're going to start over again? Well, I can speak to Norwegian Wood from this point of view is that years and years ago, a friend of mine who was an was a incredibly uh, knowledgeable Beatles fan, he... Um, uh, he played me. He played me a uh, a version which was apparently the first version of Norwegian Wood, and it was done. Uh, you know, if you know the song, uh, the guitar's capoed at two, right? So the original version, because it's like a D figure, you know, you play like a D chord and do that. The original version, the first version, was them just playing in D. I wanted a girl, or should I say, she once had me. And it's slower, she and Lennon's singing, and his voice is kind of at the low end of his of his range, so it sounds it sounds kind of dragged out, and it doesn't have the spirit of the song. So that's the version they did, and then they re-recorded it and went to Capo 2 and raised the key, and then subsequently, then that raised the um, the tempo of the song, and then everything came together from that. So I remember somewhere in my stash, I have a version of it, and it's the first version, and it's done in D. But the actual recorded version is done up is capo two, like it's up 
um, you know, it's an E. So that's why you would scrap it. It just didn't, it didn't, it was, just didn't work as that version of it. Jim, have you done that? Does any song jump to mind where you said, nah, no good, start from scratch? Uh, I don't know if any songs jumps to mind, but absolutely have I, I have scrapped a song. We commonly in in both my band and, and Blue Rodeo, we will record all together so that we have a, a large portion of the song done. And uh, but often it's tempo. Often it's uh, it's well, it's kind of like what Colin is is describing. Although it's also a key issue, it's also that the key often denotes a certain tempo. And uh, um, so sometimes you just do songs either too fast or too slow. And it's not obvious to you because you started recording it at 11 in the morning and your, your energy was a certain level. And then later in the afternoon, you think that's either way too zippy or it's just too draggy. So we've, we've certainly done that. I, I think in much the same manner that they did where they had to put it, you have to put it all together to, to see what it, how it, how it works. And, uh, you know, I, what do they lose? They lost a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sitar, uh, have, have either of you guys ever had one in your hands to try to play it? And what do you, what do you think? What, how, what, how did it change the song, Jim? Oh, I, I loved the sitar when it fr- first came out, of course. I was 10 years old, so I had no idea what that instrument was or where it came from. But, uh, you know, subsequently we all learned about that, Ravi Shankar and, and, and George's interest. Um, but I just thought it was incredibly cool. And again, I think it was, it was that time in my life when I was ready to hear a broader, a, a, you know, a, a more varied palette from the Beatles. So <clears throat> I loved it as soon as I heard it. And of course, oh, yeah. they use it in a very, a very uh, uh, melodic and simple way to reinforce this melody that's already there. Yes, I have had one in my hands. And immediately it's really hard to keep it still it's it's got the big bulb on the end and and that slides around in your in your your lap and it i don't know i couldn't i didn't have enough time but i couldn't make it make a nice noise yeah i think it's a very disciplined instrument and it it sounds fluid and easy when you hear it but to actually apply that you know and do it is a whole different animal like it is a it's a discipline and uh he was you know what to his credit he was he was very gifted at adapting his talents to instrument like an instrument like that george you know because you have to nobody had done that before him you know yeah. do you remember the in the concert for bangladesh when ravi shankar comes out and he's, he's playing and the guys are all playing and then everybody claps yeah and he says we're just tuning. Yes. <laughs> not, let's imagine what you're going to think when we play the songs. <laughs> so you realize what we were as North American audiences, how little we knew about, about um, Asian Indian um, music. And, and then Harrison, in a 1990 interview that I saw, uh, he was talking about the inclusion. And to his memory, he says it was quite spontaneous. Uh, we just mic'd it up. Uh, I put it on and it just seemed to hit the spot for the song. So that's that's his recollection of it. But I mean, agreed that that's the most distinctive thing about the track would be the sitar. Well, the sitar and the story. The story was, you know, I mean, that was also you realized everything prior to that, even though there were certain songs that were personal, like help, 
that we didn't realize were personal. This, this seemed personal. This seemed like this was really a song about John Lennon. And that was brand new information for my little 10-year-old mind. I thought, I thought pop songs existed out here and the artist existed here, whether they wrote them or just sang them. But the story was somebody else. It was imaginative. So I think that the story was pretty impactful too. Mm-hmm. Colin? Yeah, and clearly clearly influenced by the, um, the Dylan, uh, Dylan-esque opening of, uh, of yourself to a song, you know, and the narrative didn't necessarily, I mean, Dylan obviously didn't write about himself a lot, but the, but the sensibility of it was that it seemed personal, you know, and in, and in Lennon's case, it was personal. So the, so the, you know, <clears throat> the influence was clearly there. And, and because it was, I mean, as the whole record goes as being very much influenced as an acoustic record in the ideal sense. So, so yeah, that song really, really is kind of the essence of that, the beginning of that. Next cut on the first side, we go into You Won't See Me. When I call you up, your line's engaged. I have had enough, so accurate. Which was recorded on the last day of recording for Rubber Soul. Uh, what a day that was. 13 hours. They needed to finish the album. Four songs. Uh, Girl, I'm Looking Through You, Wait, and the aforementioned You Won't See Me. Uh, right. Same chords as Eight Days a Week that McCartney admits they borrowed from. There was a Four Tops hit called It's the Same Old Song. And that went EFD. And I guess this one goes BDA, which you guys would understand uh, far more than than I would being musicians. But is that a technique that you will use going up or down a step to slightly alter a melody that you've used before? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's risky uh, <laughs> because you're going to end up they're going to end up sounding the same. It's funny that that now that you said that, that uh, Four Tops song, I can I can certainly hear that. Um, I don't know. You know, I think that in in McCartney's canon, it was it was something that he used, but he was brilliant enough to to always make the melody slightly different and and certainly. Yeah. And the one thing I was going to say about this is that if you have been a band in the in the twentieth century, you cannot help but mimic Beatle background vocals. You know, once they do once they do the, the call and, and response, anytime you do it in any song and all the all the stuff that we've done together, you realize when you're doing Beatle harmonies. You realize when you're putting a certain Beatle harmony harmony on the top. And you also realize when you're doing the call and response, how they do them rhythmically rhythmically, what they say. I mean they were they really, I don't know, it's almost as if they created a library. Of, of of sounds that, that that the rest of us have just borrowed from. Yeah, I, I love it when you guys do the harmonies. Uh, what you know, whether they're an homage to the Beatles or you make them your own, but I, I just I just think it adds such beauty to a song, whether it's a Blue Rodeo song or a Jim Cuddy song or a Beatles song. I mean, it's. Um, I, I'm I'm with you. The Beatles were great, but I just when, when you're doing it, <laughs> when you're doing it with Blue Rodeo or with the, with the Jim Cuddy band, are you going? I want to. I don't want to copy, but I want to emulate kind of what they were doing in "You Won't See Me" or Eight Days a Week." Or d- does that go through your mind? Without a doubt. I mean, yes. I don't think that we're we don't plan on it. We do it, and we we're we're in the midst of doing it, and. 
we all go, mm-hmm, yep, I know, I know, no need to say it. <laughs> you know, it's like having the best cookbook in front of you and you pick the best recipe, you know, and nice sometimes one. this works, you know, and it works in a way that you are fulfilled and musically too. So, you know, yeah. Well, they did set our early and they set it high. Well, the, the clock, the song clocked in at 322, which was the longest song that they'd recorded to that point. And, and it got me thinking about, about long songs and, and uh, you guys have both referred to it. This was kind of the album where the Beatles really started to assert themselves more independently. George Martin was still there, of course, but they were starting to do things that they wanted to do. So, I looked at an album of yours, Diamond Mine, which I believe was the second Blue Rodeo album. Mm-hmm. So you'd had the first album, which, I mean, <clears throat> when it first came out, uh, it, it didn't sell as well as you'd like, but then it gathered momentum. And I mean, now it's a, it's a monster. But you're in there and you're doing Diamond Mind. And to my recollection, a fairly experimental record. It had the instrumental pieces, and then the title track cuts in at well over eight minutes. Was there a feeling of, at the time, of trying to assert yourself and do your own thing a bit, take some artistic freedom, or am I am I fishing off the wrong pier? Oh no no no! You're not doing what you just said. Um, <laughs> no, that was you know we had we had come from making outskirts. Our first record was with Terry Brown who was very much a traditional producer, told us what to do, made us all uh, perform individually, cut tracks, you know, so, and we all followed it and it all worked out. And we also knew that we wanted to do something entirely different from our next record. Got Malcolm Byrne, went into an old uh, movie theater uh, off the Danforth, created a studio and did whatever we wanted. And so... We were popular enough at the time that we could get away with that. But it was also, it was an act of, of relief. It was, it was, we didn't want any restraints on us and we wanted to do all these songs. And uh, Diamond Mine was just what it was. I mean, we had always been a jamming band. We had always played songs to whatever length they, they happened to be, depending on the soloing. And so it was natural for us to do Diamond Mine that way. And we were just lucky that, again, we were... We were enough in the in the public's mind that radio stations played a lot. Some radio stations played the entire version. There was also a cut down version, but we never dealt with three minute songs. We always dealt with five minute songs, six minute songs, four and a half minute songs. So it wasn't as much of a stretch for us. And uh, but just using our, you know, playing our strong hand at that point. Colin, I'm going to let you lead off on Nowhere Man, the next cut. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land Making all his nowhere plans For nobody It has this sort of folk element to it, the basis of it, but it also has this electric element that was, you know, I would say it was part part of the production value of the song and um uh the most significant you know part guitar wise that everybody always makes note of and when i was growing up i could never figure out like how did they get that guitar solo sound you know because it it just it's again one of those sounds where you're, you're you know my my curiosity is always how did they get it what did they use you know 
And in that song, it's the first time um, that uh, they, John and George had gotten Stratocasters in 1964, but they didn't use them. You know, they, they had acquired them, but they hadn't used them. So it was the first time they used a, uh, and, uh, used a Stratocaster on a record. But what they did with that, with the solo that everybody knows, um, first off, it's double tracked, and uh, which was a big thing because they weren't doing a lot of double tracking again. But I, to my earlier comment about how they would, they're starting into, into implement the possibility of more tracks because they were using two machines and bouncing between the two. So they could do that stuff more. Anyways, it's a Stratocaster that um, you'd never heard on a Beatles record before. And they double tracked it and the way they got the sound was they actually they did what they call direct injection and we call that di now like it's it's a commonplace uh technique in recording you know uh, you do it all the time but back then it was new they called it direct injection and so the, it's a stratocaster going into a di box into a fairchild compressor into the, the uh, console to tape. So just that from a production standpoint, it's a very, you know, it had never been done before. It's done, it's been done a million times now. But back then it had never been done. So again, it was another one of those things where you, I finally, you know, my friend taught me years ago, oh, here's what they did to get that sound. And then I listened to it and I go, oh, of course it's that. Like, because you know the instruments now, you know the sound you just didn't know how they got it so that song for me represents to your question a, a great musical piece of music but it is got some production value that is again a benchmark it's a beginning it's a it's a genesis of something that then became common right massive amount of treble too does that does that contribute to the distinct That's sound partly in the compression well, it's a strat so a stratocaster you know, into a compressor. And again, like I said earlier, you know, they had on the console that they used, now I want to get really nerdy. They used this, the console they used was called a Red 51 console. They were made by EMI. And that was a console that they, they basically started it when they started recording in 1963, the console that, um, that EMI had at Abbey Rose called a Red 37. And it was then they, they, they ended up, uh, the next version was a Red 51. Well, that console had two, it had uh, a section for the EQ, which was a treble and a bass, you know, and then you would change out different cards depending on uh, the kind of EQing potential you would have from those knobs. And one was, you know, there was a classical card and there was a pop card and you would switch them out. Well, the Beatles used the pop card and then they would, they would be able to carve out or add more treble and bass. So there's also been enhanced, they enhanced a lot of those signals to tape with more top end because they knew they were going to go through certain generations in their bounce, you know, the bouncing between tracks. And then by the time they got to the, the tape transfer for mix, you're always going to lose a certain amount of top end. So they would add it in right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's partly the reason why those records, the, those sounds always seem to have that top end, that clear, because they, they actually did, you know, they, they enhanced it a lot of times to, to tape. Jim, songwriter's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, you asked. No, no. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I want to make a I want to make a joke, but it's actually really fascinating. <laughs> I'll keep it short next time. Oh, no, no. You, you keep doing what you're doing. That's why they have editing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love... Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a huge Beatles fan, and that's all great stuff. <laughs> but no, but songwriter's point of view, uh, I mean, it, it's a clearly... I think anyways, to me, Jim, a, a confessional song, something more, he's, he's giving something of himself. Do you get that out of it? For me, I think that uh, this was one of the mind benders, you know, 10 years old. I'm listening to Nowhere Man and I think this means something. This, this, is, this is John pointing a finger, g- gently and kindly, but pointing a finger. And then, you know, having the backup as, isn't he a bit like you and me? Um, but no, I think it's it, it it's uh, it's the you song that that became so uh, in this from the sixties on that became such a such a um, such an important song of, of wagging a finger at somebody and saying you are doing this you are doing that and again it's a very gentle version but I wanted to ask you guys for some reason I so I rem- remember this as a single from that record it, what was I know that um, we can work it out day tripper came out first. But was this the first single from Rubber Soul? It was only released as a single in North America. Uh, it came out on February the 21st, 1966, so about two months after the album release. And it was the first single off the album in North America. It was Nowhere Man backed with What Goes On. It was a number one single in Canada uh, with that very distinctive ooh-la-la vocal. So that little part in, in, in uh, ooh-la-la-la, that little, that little background, every band in the 20th century, latter part of the 20th century has done. We have all done ooh-la-la-la, ooh-la-la-la to have a, to have a backdrop to somebody saying. All you have to do is smile and say, yes, I know we're doing this. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so we come to the first George Harrison song on the on the British release. Think for yourself. Uh, one of two Harrison Penn songs in the record. Uh, the second one to be recorded. And the most notable feature of the song from a a uh, technical point of view is the two bass guitars, both played by McCartney. One is a standard bass, and the other was the, and I, I don't know if it gets used much anymore. You guys would know better than me, but it was the notorious fuzz bass that got used an awful lot back in the 60s. Is, is, is that still a thing? Oh, yeah, for sure. I use fuzz bass in uh, CNC a lot, you know. Um, there's different ways to do it. One is that you literally... Because it's always a pedal, you know, or a you know device. You either go straight into the device, or you sort of split it out, and you have the clean bass sound, and then the fuzz bass sound, and you blend a percentage of them together. You know, sometimes the clean sounds a little more prominent than the, than the fuzz sound. So uh, that may have been the case in what they did back then. You know, Jim, uh, Rena, I'm on a Zoom call. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. Hey, it's it's uh, we're all recording at home. Jim, uh, I mean, think for yourself. Uh, is it uh, is it just kind of a filler track? No, I mean, I don't think one of Harrison's greatest. No, 
I, no, I don't know. I, I think it's a good, good, solid track. I, I think it's certainly, it's certainly fit. And it also, well, because, you know, I'm referring more com- commonly to the North American version, is the first song that gave some, that had some bite, so that had some excitement. And so it, you know, you have the, 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 the poppy, the folky, the, and then, and then all of a sudden you have this one from George that, that uh, has a little bit of rock and roll to it. So, I thought it was important in the in the running order of the of the uh, of the record, and no, it doesn't seem like a weak track to me for George. Uh, and then on the on the British release, that goes into the word, uh, which was this is interesting. This is one of the first Beatles songs that McCartney actually admits they wrote under the influence of weed. So he says, "This is his quote." He says, "We smoked a bit of pot, then we wrote out a multicolored lyric sheet." The first time we'd ever done that. We normally didn't smoke when we were working. It got in the way of songwriting because it would just cloud your mind. Uh, but he said, we did this multicolor thing with this song. Does it sound like a pot song to you, Jim? <laughs> well, if it, if, it is, if, it's a, if it sounds like a pot song, it's not a great endorsement for writing on pot. It's a pretty, it's a pretty lightweight song, you know. Yeah. It's fine, and it somehow it talks about the ethos of the day. And the word is yeah. love, um, which is great, but it doesn't really say anything. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty well worn path for the Beatles. So for me, that's that's a bit of filler. The word's a bit of filler. I, it's still great. I mean, the, the the vocal harmonies are great. It sounds so amazing, but yeah. it's a bit of filler as a song. To me. The thing I read about it was that the word was a, was sort of a was a sort of early slang term to sort of you tell your people or in your in your group that you know hey have you you know uh, have you heard the word and the word was like code for have you smoked any weed. It does highlight that kind of unique drumming style that Ringo had. You know the left drummer playing a right hand kit. And so during the fills, he'd come off the he'd come off the snare to the toms, leading with his left hand, sort of going backwards. Gives him a really unique sound, and I think I think you can hear it on this cut. Uh, Jim, what's your take on Ringo as a drummer? Oh my God, I, I, it's hard for me to listen to criticism of Ringo as a drummer because Ringo was the perfect pop drummer when they were just a pop band. He was the perfect transition drummer. He did all kinds of inventive things to create sounds. And then when they got psychedelic, he, I mean, again, when people drum like Ringo, they say, you're drumming like Ringo. Nobody else sounds like that. Now you think two sticks, two arms, two feet, and the same kit that everybody has. And if you can create a character sound, and he did it about three times, you know, nobody drums, if you, okay, okay, I'll put this to Colin. Anybody that drums like they drum in rain, that's Ringo. You're drumming like Ringo. Uh, you know, the splashy hi-hats in the early puss stuff. I think I think he was absolutely brilliant. And I and yeah. I think that it's absolutely. it's much it's much harder to create an, an identifiable character with an instrument than it is to be a virtuoso. That's yeah. what I think. And I also think that he was incredibly inventive in the parts that he did come up with 
for those songs. You know, they seem like they seem like they were always there. You know, they're the perfect accompaniment to those songs. And he had to come up with them. Or as a group, they had to negotiate that direction. And that absolutely, uh, the talent involved in that is immeasurable. And, you know, people just think, well, yeah, he was just banging on some, it's not, it has nothing to do, to do with that. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. He evolved as much as they did, you know, it never felt like he, somebody, you know, in this way to say, well, he kind of got left behind, you know, his patterns or his ideas or his, his contributions didn't evolve every bit as much as their songwriting and the, you know, performances did. It, it absolutely did. And then the first side on the British release closes out with Michelle. Interesting McCartney talking. He says it was a tune I'd written in, in the Chet Atkins finger picking style. Uh, there's a song yeah. he did called uh, Trambone with a repetitive top line. So he played a bass line while playing a melody. And that was an innovation to McCartney at the time. Classical guitarists did it, but no rock and roll guitarists had played it. And uh, he based the song on that finger-picking style. You can really hear that when it gets pointed out. I just think it's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant piece of music, and uh, and again shows how um, how you know effortless, effortlessly it seemed Paul was able to shift from one style and and sentiment to another, and you know that song's a masterpiece in every way for me. Well, I like the fact that whenever the Beatles said they copied something, you have to think about it just to hear what they copied because they were so original that even their copies sound original you know i mean i mean drive my car being otis redding's like okay i kind of can hear it but it doesn't sound like that yeah you you didn't do it uh and michelle is i understand you learn a technique and all of a sudden something comes and i remember what wasn't there a quote with with from john lennon saying you know i'm a musician and if you gave me anything any item at all, I would make a sound on it and create a, create a song. And I think, yeah, that's that's what they were. You know, as 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 loud it is as Paul McCartney is, I think he's still underrated as as a, a composer genius of the 20th century. I just think the guy <clears throat> put out a lot of stuff, so I guess there's there are some false steps. But his ability to draw a melody out of the air and create something that's moving and beautifully structured. And Michelle's, a, like Colin says, it's just beautiful. And I, I, again, I remember, you know, going through the first side of the record and getting to Michelle and just, just being happy to hear something sweet and lovely. I was still young enough that, you know, I, the, re- the record was, took some listening, but not Michelle. Michelle was a little gift as this is this is just sweetness, and you'll like this right away. And well, I still love it the same way. Well, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't if I didn't jump in here with uh, your reference to McCartney as being one of the greatest writers of pop songs of in history uh, mm-hmm. is 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 well taken. But 
it's, and I don't expect you have the secret or if, if you do have the secret, you can't share it. But what Lennon and McCartney did was they wrote hooks. They wrote hooks and they wrote songs that people are singing 50 years later. And you and your musical partner have that gift. You have written so many hooks and melodies that we all know. Where does that come from? <laughs> Do you sit down and go, no, okay, it, I'm going to write, the, a, I'm gonna write yeah, a hook? <laughs> yeah, it is the... Uh, it's the impossible to answer question. I think that it, it, it comes, it is born of a lot of trial and error. It's born of determination. It's born obviously of some access that, that artists have to, to a, a huge well of, of sounds and, 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 uh, and, uh, and stories. And <clears throat> it's just, it's so much about pleasing yourself. It's so much about, you know, I, I think Colin's probably the same way. Most people I know that are musicians are the same way. Ever since I was a kid, music was completely and absolutely arresting for me. I couldn't carry on a conversation if there was music in the background that I wanted to hear. I just would be completely absorbed by it. So with that amount of attention and, you know, some invention, you just keep working at it and you just keep trying things out and, uh, and I'm lucky to have had such a such a creative partner. Uh, Greg and I were have been writing partners since the late '70s, and that's and we have nurtured each other. We have conflicted each other. We have done all these things that are kind of necessary to keep keep the fires burning. So then we flip it over onto side two, and a song that to me sounds it's called "What Goes On." The only Lennon-McCartney-Starkey song in the Beatles catalog. Ringo got a writing credit on it. No formal middle eight, just kind of one chorus, one verse extended. Uh, but to me, Colin, it sounds... If Carl Perkins didn't walk into the studio and play guitar on this track, <laughs> then, then George, you can hear the influence in George Harrison, can you not? Oh, it's a, to me, it's a total throwback song. You know, it's one of the one, it's one of the song, one of the, probably the only songs on the record that, that has that, definitely has that homage to the earlier time, you know, that, 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 and Ringo's sensibility, I guess, the way that maybe he felt himself in the band was his character as a singer and his character as a, as a persona, you know, with a bit more of that, you know, that earlier rock and roll, you know, the country guy meets early rock and roll style. And that's so that makes the, it made the song fitting. Right. Also, it's also, it's like one thing to have a song that you either are given to sing, which obviously happened with him or that you're involved in, but it has to be the right fit, you know, so they always seem like the songs Ringo did, you know, they, they just seem like the right fit, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, now, they left this one off of the North American release. Uh, Jim, uh, are, are you shaking your head or nodding your head? Good call or bad call? Well, I was, I was doing, no, well, you know, I mean, it re, it's replaced by It's Only Love on the, um, It's Only Love and That Is All. That's, oh. that's a better song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, then what goes on? I mean, I'm sorry for Ringo, and I know that Ringo had to get his due, but 
It's Only Love is a is a great song. So, I mean, I know they used all these anyway, but but again, I don't I don't think that was a good choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your uh, your your views on on the lineups of the two albums. I've uh, I've never put out there before. It's it's an interesting take you have. So, you take you take the North American album as you think it was better sequenced. Oh, I think it was much better sequenced. Yeah, I think that I think even those two things, you know, uh, starting off with I've Just Seen a Face. Uh, I mean, that it's just, it's a brilliant start. I'm not sure, you know what, it, it seems to me the way that the British um, record is sequenced is just get all these songs on there and, you know, make sure. I mean, it's funny that Michelle's seventh, but, but it just seems like they just banged them on. Like, drive my car to Norwegian Wood. Colin, would you have done that? Bad sequence. Bad sequence. It's it's weird. It doesn't. Yeah. It one doesn't yeah. set up the other. Um, I've just seen a face to Norwegian Wood. Just a smooth transition, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I would have left. Uh, I would have left what goes on off the record too, if given the choice to put together, <laughs> you know, a sequence as we're going. With, uh, yeah. So B B side or maybe uh, Rarities Collection. <laughs> Could be. You know, I think what was funny is that was our first, most of my generation, it was our first um, uh, hearing of that Carl Perkins guitar, that kind of picking country guitar, unless we came from families, you know, like Basil Donovan that only listened to country music. And now maybe this is sacrilege, but George does it just well enough. You know, he's not good at it. He does it just good enough. And I bet you, I bet you that wasn't <laughs> one take. I bet you that, because you can hear some of them, you think, I don't know. If they'd had another go at that, that might've been better. But it still isn't, I mean, well, I didn't know any better. I just thought, this is cool guitar. I don't know what this is, but it sounds so cool. And and then of course I I would hear the radio, I'd hear Johnny Cash say, that's where it's from. Or, or they're, they're ripping off the Beatles, you know? Yeah, and right. that, guy's, that guy's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> to get off on a sideline, uh, can, can you yourself emulate that sort of Carl Perkins type? Like, what's the secret to getting that sound? Is it the guitar? Is it how it's processed? Is it a style? Is it, yes, all of the, all the above? Yeah, it's all the above. It really is. Guitar, you know, there's a slapback echo sort of component to, to getting a certain of the classic rock and billy, rock and roll, late 50s, you know. And then there's the Chet Atkins, as you know, as he mentions that he was influenced by Chet Atkins. Well, you know, like Chet Atkins was, he was the gold standard of being able to do, um, you know, alternate style picking, playing. There was a group of guys in the 50s who were just incredible at that and Chad Atkins was the probably the most popular guy. So, you know, George is extracting this version of it, which really served well. And it was, you know, it bridged him in this way of becoming that style of guitar player. But also I still hear all of his, his pop sensibility in his playing. And that's what I love. So, you know, it did him, it did him really well. But as Jim suggests, you know, it, he wasn't, it wasn't masterful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a, a Chet Atkins story. So uh, mid-career for Blue Rodeo, we're playing uh, Nashville Now, which is uh, Ralph Emery's show in Nashville. And uh, so we go down and we're quite excited. And we also think this is a bit of a weird choice for us to be playing there, but fine. Show in our dressing room. I walk into the dressing room. There's an old guy in there just, just like in his underwear, just putting on pants of, of his suit. 
in this cheap suit. And he looks up and I think, that's Chet Atkins. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, no, no, we're, we're sharing this dressing room. And I said, you're, you're Chet Atkins. You, they make you share a dressing room? And he said, this is Nashville, man. <laughs> oh, that's a great, that is a great story. That's a great story. Uh, so we'll move on inside to uh, second track on the British version is Girl. songs that they recorded written and recorded on the last day of recording so they they had to get the album finished and uh, a bit of humor um the, the humor in this, the, the Beatles, there were lads from Liverpool at, at the end of the day. They were scousers. So you have in Penny Lane, you have fish and finger pie, which is a, you can figure it out. In, in Day Tripper, uh, it sounds like she's a big teaser, but one of them is she's a prick teaser. So they, yeah. they snuck that in. And then in this one, the song called Girl, the backing vocals, they're not go they're not going dit dit dit, they're going tit 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 tit. Uh I just when I read that, I thought, oh you you sly boys, you sliding that pat past George Martin up there in his shirt and tie in the control room. <laughs> I say, yeah. boys, was that tit you were saying? No, 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 George, it was dit. <laughs> but aside from that, Jim, uh, what is what does this song do or not do for you? It'd be interesting to see how many bands would admit that they've they've done the tit 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 thing too. Yeah. Um, we certainly have. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful song. You know, it's a it's a it's a beautiful melody. It's beautiful backgrounds. Um, it's uh, it's just one of the pure pleasure tracks on this on this record, and yet it's still. You know, she's the kind of girl who's still pointing a finger, uh, and. That worked so well for Lennon, pointing out everybody else's flaws. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, no, he did. He uh, he he loved to uh, he loved to write those those songs. I mean, the great line, right? Uh, a man must break his back to earn his day of leisure. Like a, a very, as you say, Jim, very 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 pointing Spoken. the finger. Spoken from the back-breaking work of a rock star. Yeah. D- uh, d- Colin, does it have a bit of a Beach Boys vibe to it at all with the vocals? Yeah, I would say because it's the the tonality of the voices is softer, you know, maybe. Um, I I don't hear it otherwise, to be honest, you know. I didn't know if you switched out the the tit tit tits for the la 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 that the Beach Boys like to do. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. maybe there were a lot of bands doing like sort of those kind of percussive background parts you know there was that was definitely out of the sort of motown r&b i think that's probably more what came from so then the the next cut is i'm looking through you and i don't know you might have it in your stash colin but the the early version of this uh the, the album version the one that's on rubber soul is a remake of a first attempt that mm-hmm. eventually saw the light of day i think it was in one of their anthology albums the first attempt was a g major key and it was a little slower and tougher uh and then the the finished version i believe is in an a flat major which isn't a key that gets used a lot uh i don't think uh no s- starts off in sort of a waltz time and then slips into four four
I think it's a lovely song, but I'm listening to it as a fan. Uh, oh, I always loved that song. I, I, I am. If I heard the original version, I think the original version was done in '63, so it was an earlier, yeah, uh, template. But uh, I love the version that's on the on Rubber Soul. I, I've always, you know, I've always loved the arrangement and um, at the sound of it. Uh, another interesting thing that I that I maybe keep thinking about with a lot of these songs as they come up is this record was also intentionally done where a lot of the vocals are really dry. Um, and it's surprising when you hear it because you don't think that's the case. Where the earlier records they would use, they only had really only effects they had on vocals were, were the uh, chamber reverb uh, at Abbey Road. And then they had sort of like early, you know, sort of tape delay style echo. And um, and Norm Smith, when he got to Rubber Soul, you know, he sort of, I guess, he, as part of everybody trying to change things up, he sort of decided that he wanted a lot of the songs to be as dry, drier vocals and more intimate. And that sort of goes with the, 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 you know, the acoustic sensibility of the songs. And when I think of, you know, I'm looking through you, I just think his voice is just so... It's just so present to me, and that's I think that's part of what I love about the recording. Jim, uh, thumbs up or down on this one? Oh, man, thumbs up. Thumbs up on this one. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things I was going to say is that the Beatles were so good at writing middle eights. So they get the first and the chorus and all the instrumentation. And then in the middle, there's assumedly eight bars of something that, you know, why tell me why did you not treat me right? They just never missed I mean, they, you know, everybody tries to do some form, uh, you know, to adapt their melody to some form to change it in the middle of a song. And the Beatles just could, um, they could do it so easily. And they, they, I mean, I know sometimes they did it by the two, two writers writing different things. But just in terms of taking your melody, doing, a, doing a, a, an adaptation and then coming back to your melody, that's... This is a beautiful example of it, and it's yeah. got that. It's got the great uh, um, guitar figure at the beginning that everybody learns to play, and uh, yeah, it's a absolute stellar song. If you get the chance, pull out the version on the anthology because uh, it's it's. I love it, um, but it's it's different. But it starts off with sort of a. And they do the hand clap, and then the guitar sort of comes in, boom, 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 oh, yeah. boom, and it, uh, and it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's very different, but different key, and, and slower, uh, and maybe a little more plodding. But it was interesting just how they went from that, and then ended up with this. Uh, if, if you want to do a little Beatles nerdy thing, uh, it's, it's worth giving a listen. And then this goes into Cut 11, uh, In My Life. And John Lennon later said, this was my first real major piece of work that was about my own life. 
this is a, a, a piece of brilliance. This is an absolutely beautiful song. It's uh, um, sincere and it's uh, got a beautiful melody, beautifully put together, beautifully recorded. John Lennon being sincere, not not sneering, not pointing the finger. And it was, uh, it's, it's. I mean, it, it endures as one of the great, maybe the top, one of the top 10 Beatles songs of all time. Yeah, it, it, it does everything that you want a great song to do. And it's, and it has a timeless quality, obviously. It's been interpreted countless numbers of times by artists since it was written. And uh, that's also, to me, a testament of the, of the, the greatness of a song is that how it can it's adaptable by many different uh, genres or styles or cultures and you know that song certainly does that. So let, let's just do one little one little criticism of it. Remember, this was written by a 25 year old man, and he's it's like he's looking back and saying all these things I've forgotten in the last. <laughs> Four years in the last two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what exactly are you talking about? So there is a there is a slight absurdity to the to the age of the composer, but barring that, it's a beautiful song. No, that's very true. I, I mean, but then you think about composers, of, oh, you know, through the ages, and you, and and their work belies their age, you know, or their wisdom, so to speak. Sure, sure. Oh. No, I, I get it. I I, I understand. Well, how yeah. did that? How the hell did they know what that? is you know feels like at you know 17 right yeah so but uh, it happens right yeah uh, there, there's so many i mean uh eleanor rigby what if what an incredible song about society in britain there, there's not a there's I, I was lucky enough to live there for almost 10 years and the line resonates with me the line wearing her face that she keeps in the jar by the door uh mm. and that is so english the stiff upper lip, you never show a weakness, you never display your emotions, you put the face on that you keep in the jar by the door. And I look at that, and Jim, to your point, I go, how the hell could he have that observation as a young guy in his in his 20s? It just seems so so poignant, and maybe that's yeah. part of his brilliance as a composer. I don't know. Sure. But, um, okay, a couple little nerdy things quickly for that song, if you want. Now, obviously, the, the, the piano motif in the middle of the song is um, is what they call a half speed uh, is done at half speed, where they originally there was a guitar solo in that in that solo section. They opted to not use it to the guitar solo, and they re recorded. And George Martin does the you know the it sounds like a harpsichord, but it's actually a piano. But it's recorded at half speed um, because they wanted to sound a certain way. As much as they wanted to use that part, they wanted the sound to be, they wanted it to sound more shortened and, and decayed in terms of the piano sound. So that that technique, George Martin figured out uh, as a production thing to, to do that, um, where you would literally run the tape. They ran their tape speeds at 15 IPS. So they, when it came to that section, they slowed the tape down to half, played it as a, at an octave lower, Played it as a sort of slower locked of lower and then put the tape back because you could never really play that. I mean, I'm, some, I'm sure that some piano players could play it, but it's not, you know, it's not a physically easy thing to do. 
That is a first all-star team nerd fact. Like that's good. That is quality <laughs> stuff. That is really good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is great stuff. <laughs> so then out of that, you go into uh, Wait, which had been kicking around for quite a while. Uh, originally written for the Help album uh, back in June. And then they came back to it again on that last that last day. And, and uh, it's uh, instrumentally... What to, George, George Harrison's pedal tone guitar maybe is is the thing that makes it stand out. Uh, Jim, isn't it? Am I wrong? Is it, it is it sung by the two of them? John does John does part and and, and Paul does the other part. Wait. Hadn't done that in a long time either. But yeah, you can just hear the beginning. Of, well, I guess he did it a lot on help, but you can hear the the uh, the swell guitar um, yeah. in the uh, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, a good one. You know, not not uh, first all star team, but but it's a good one. And it's yeah. a, it's a great uh, it's a great vocal performance from both of them. It's really really high and 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 assertive and really great well and then the next cut is um if i needed someone which was the first harrison track recorded for rubber soul finished up on uh, the same day they finished it up the same day that they started in my life just to for some context as to what they were doing that day i absolutely love the 12 string Rickenbacker, and this is such a showcase for it. Uh, I mean, uh, Jim, you're smiling and nodding your head. You too, Colin. I mean, it's, it's I, I just, I love the sound of the instrument, and it just, it has that bird's sound to it so much. Well, yeah, for sure. It, I mean, it, you know, it's always interesting to, to wonder where the influence of that came from. You know, uh, George had the Ricky 12 first, you know. Um, I won't get super nerdy about Ricky 12 strings, but I can tell you that his is number two. It's not number one, but his is the second one made. And um, but by the time, you know, that song came around, obviously the birds were already kind of coming into full force with everything. So the Ricky 12 string sound was very popular. Uh, and that song, you know, it, the thing that also makes that song really ringy and, and bright is, you know, the capos, it's capoed at capo five. So it's not only high, you know, as a Ricky Rickenbacker 12 string sound, it's all, it's high in terms of its pitch, you know, like he's playing up pretty high to get that motif. Right, it, it capoed um, at the fifth fret. So um, I've always loved the song because if you play a Ricky, and you know, there's certain sort of go-to songs that Jim and I both, you know, we're both like, oh yeah, well, you got to learn how to play this song on a Ricky because it just it almost gets you into the into the you know into the club, right? So they're not easy to play. Uh, you know, in some respects. So he says, uh, Roger McGinn says, uh, and George Harrison didn't hide this. It was based on the bird song, the bells of Rimney. Oh, okay. Uh, based on that. Uh, and, yeah. and the drumming from she don't care about time. So it was very, very homage to the birds. Now, speaking of 12 string Rickies, correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm sure you will. That is a 12 string Ricky on, uh, till I am myself again. Is it not? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. It's yeah. actually Colin's 12 string Ricky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wasn't in the band at the time, but he you were in LA, right? Yeah, no, I, I somehow yeah, I was in LA. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. So we we used his. I loaned it to them to I loaned it to uh yeah. to uh to Greg, you know, because I had you been using it in our, you know, Greg and I played together in Crash Vegas, which um and I was playing the Ricky right out of the gate in that band. So I think that, that, you know, that influenced, and I'm sure you had a Ricky once, but you had a six string, right, Jim? I had a six string. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those guitars I never should have let slip away. Well, let's let's just talk about, you know, there was something I loved George as a kid. I thought he was cool beetle. And I love the fact that he was kind of second string and, and I just loved it. But there was always something about his songs that was a little off putting. And often it was the lyrical content. And this one is a perfect example. You know, it the Beatles, especially John Lennon, were coming there next. They could exhibit some really full-blown sexism in their songs. And this one, you know, apparently was written to his girlfriend who became his wife, right? Patty Boyd. Oh. Yeah, Patty Boyd. And, and uh, you know, it's like, carve your number on, uh, carve my number on your wall. Maybe you'll get a call from me. And if I needed somebody, you'd be the one I, I, I would choose. And you should be thrilled that I'm telling you this. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it, it, even, even as a kid, it was, I didn't understand why it was off-putting, but it was off-putting. And, uh, and, you know, which is funny considering I never even thought twice about the lyrics of the next song. Oh yeah, the most hideous lyrics of all time. Well, well, just to stay with this for a second, though, it's a lot of George's songs with the Beatles have that kind of like grumpy old man quality, right? Like, uh, don't bother me. Yeah, piggies. Uh, tax man, he's whinging about the tax that he. I mean, we could all we could all write that song, of course. But yeah, he's, yeah. but but he yeah he had that really whingy quality, and it's it's funny because from afar you want to go. You're in the Beatles. How bad right. can things be? <laughs> right. But and and he certainly ended up being you know by by any account that you read or see, he ended up being a very peaceful, loving man. He was good to his friends, and but there was there's always there's there's often a little cringeworthy element to the lyrics of his songs. Mm-hmm. And yep. this one, this one's right yep. up there for me. I like the song, but I don't like the lyric. Yeah. Guys, I have two nerdy guitar questions for you when I have you here. Uh, so first of all, uh, Colin can probably answer this one. How the hell do you keep a 12-string Ricky in tune and, and sounding the way it sounds when you play it? What's the secret? You have to be patient with the tuning. And you'd have to know how to tune one. And you just learn those two things. You know, uh, there's no real secret to it. It's just patience and, uh, and, and um, learning the tricks. Somebody will teach you the tricks. You know, I was taught the tricks. I've passed them along since then. But, uh, you know. Colin, there's also, there's also this sense that you get a good one or you don't get a good one of the 12 strings, right? Yes, absolutely. And there's also like any guitar you know sometimes you get really great ones and uh i was very lucky that the one i have i've had since 86 and you know it's a 67 um i call it the summer of love ricky because it's made in june 67 um 
but I got a really great one right, um, you know, early on. So that really does help for sure. I thought I read that you have a vintage Gretsch on Permalone from Colin. <laughs> what? No, I have a Gretsch acoustic guitar. It, no, uh, it's, 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 uh, I have, but you know what? I try not to mention it because <laughs> I've had it now for about 14 years. And no, I just keep, I just keep hiding it in my house. So when he comes over and just a little scan, he's not going to see it. Sorry, no, I think sorry. He's gotten that one day I actually just said, you know, you've had that guitar longer than I ever had it. So you <laughs> yeah, it's a beauty. Yeah. It's a beauty. It's guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so then the last song on the British release of the album, uh, Cut 14, Run For Your Life. And the line in question is, I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man, which was taken from an early Elvis Presley song, Baby, Let's Play House. Uh, and to be fair, uh, Jim, John Lennon later said in 1973, said this is his least favorite Beatles song and the song he most regretted writing. Did it creep you out even when you heard it as a kid? No. No, when I heard it as a kid, it was it was no different. It, it just seemed like a blues song. I mean, you know, when you were listening to those things, hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? All this kind of stuff. It didn't it didn't occur to me at all. It didn't occur to me at all until I was in my twenties, and then and then listening to it. And and you know, John had repudiated his writing it, but he didn't just write that. He didn't just take that line about rather see you dead. Then you know, he said, "Baby, I'm determined that I." You know, he every verse has something absolutely sickening in it. Uh, yeah. It's it's amazing that it exists in the Beatle canon. It really is. It's an absolutely disgraceful lyric. And I, you know, I, I don't blame John, although by all accounts, he was a pretty violent young guy. Um, yeah. And that, that this seemed, that this seemed okay in in the, the imaginary world of songs, that it, it came from this blues tradition of, you know, who even wants to say it? But I, I get where it came from. Um, <laughs> but there it is. You know, <laughs> you, you know there's a lot of, uh, I mean, he did it, he sang it, and it's too bad because it is a great song. Without those lyrics, it's a great song. It's got really good guitar parts. It's got really good vocals. But apparently he never did it. He never performed it beyond the recording. Right. Yeah. That's it. Only time he ever did it. So. Right. I mean, it's not like there was a whole bunch of other opportunities. Yeah. (laughs) True enough. True enough. But they did still play after that. So he could have. Yeah, sort of. I mean, they did what, 13 dates and then they did, did eight dates in the the summer and then they're done. So not a lot of, uh, not a lot of cover versions of this one. There's not a lot. There's not a lot. Of, are there any? Did anybody cover? I couldn't okay. find one example. Okay, that's but good. Big philosophical question, and uh, not pertaining particularly to this song, but songs don't always date well. Um, but most of the Beatles, I think, do date well. Is that is that a fair general statement? Absolutely. You know, I I think it does because they're so deeply embedded in my pleasure center, but. I don't think everybody feels like that. You know, I remember that the first, our first drummer, Cleve Anderson, he wasn't a big Beatle fan. For him, and he's just a little older than I am, a couple years older. 
for him, it was too childish. You know, all, all right from the beginning, it was too childish. And he, he, he tended to like a lot of darker things, more Hendrix and, and the Stones and, and then punk music. But, but, but I think that in terms of the brilliance of the songwriting, singing, arrangements and sounds, it would be very hard to argue that they don't still exist as standards. They are the Bobby Orr of, of music. They, they just are. And it's, it's pretty hard to argue. You might not like it, but in terms of what they accomplished in that short seven-year period, I don't know. It seems like that that's the tome. Jim, have you ever come close to meeting McCartney or have you met him? No, I have never come close to meeting McCartney. The, the closest I've come is, is Ron Sexsmith's story of being over there for lunch. And I, <laughs> you know what? I don't know what I, what I would say. I, I mean, you know, Ron had a chance to play a song for, for Paul McCartney and, and he played a silly little love song instead of playing one of his own. And I think, would I do that? Like, would I be so befuddled that I would? That oh, would... this is a great, this is a great thread of a conversation. Come on, what would you play? You're having tea with Paul McCartney at his house in St. John's Wood on Cavendish Avenue. And he said, come on, oh. come on, Jim, play me a song. Pick one of my guitars. Oh my God! Well, his yeah, his guitars be left-handed, so I couldn't. Play well, that's guitars. a good point. Good point. Um, but you know what? I think if I th- think about it rationally, I'd like to play him something like "Bad Timing" or or something that was just a song that I'd written. I guess just for for history, just to say I played one of my songs for Paul McCartney. I don't think I would play him one of his songs. As <laughs> if somebody came up to me and said. Oh, you know, I said play a song, and then they played one of my songs. I don't, I would endure it, but I wouldn't like, enjoy it. I'll, I'll bet that's happened to you, though. Come on. Oh, <laughs> sure, but you know, I think it's just one of those moments, and I and I love that Ron's moment is is very Ron Sexsmithish, and that's exactly. I'm sure he would still choose that again, but uh, but no, I don't know. What would you do, Colin? I would yeah. uh, would have played. Well, you know, I would play one of my own songs i guess that that would be the that seems to be the the premise that 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 the ask is about you know i think i think think that's what you're being asked yeah yeah Yeah, like play me something that you come up with yeah so guys final thoughts looking on this album uh where does it where does it rate in the the beatles canon uh where does it rate for you personally is it one that you pull out every once in a while and is it your go-to beatles album uh colin i'll let you start i would say my go-to beatles album uh, that's so hard because i i mean i love so many of them but i would you know my go-to would be abbey road uh but rubber soul would would certainly be um number two, you know, when I go through different periods of their work, I'm reminded of certain parts of, you know, periods in my life, even though I did obviously come sort of at the end of the, you know, like I said, I got, I got Abbey Road in the, you know, that Christmas uh, that it came out. But, uh, but, um, you know, I would say that, you know, Abbey Road and, and, and then Rubber Soul and then Revolver for me would be my, uh, those would be my three for the top three anyway. You know what? I, I think I'm like a lot of Beatles fans. I'll say, well, Rubber Soul is my favorite record, but, but maybe Abbey Road's my favorite record. But then, you know, I really used to like Beatles 65. I love Beatles 65. And I really remember playing 
liking, uh, you know, such and such. I, I, I'm not sure that they all represent such different phases of my childhood and they all have greatness. And sometimes I like to just listen to the deterioration ones, you know, I, I like, and, and I'd say my favorite song, my favorite Beatles song is, is Long and Winding Road. And, yeah. and I, I probably like it from the Naked record. So I think that the whole, the whole thing, uh, it would be hard for me to pick a record because it would be, they're all very different. They're not, although Re Revolver and Rubber Soul can be compared, they're very different records and they represent different, a different phase of the Beatles. So I, I wouldn't be able to pick a, pick a favorite record, although it's been very fun dissecting this record. Yeah. Guys, yes. I, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time. And uh, it has been a complete pleasure sitting and talking about the Beatles with a couple of guys who, A, know it backwards, forwards, and sideways, but B, <laughs> Of pretty iconic Canadian musicians, uh, so I I don't take that uh, for granted. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It's great. I'm glad you're doing this. This is wonderful. Fantastic. So you can find all you want to know about what Jim is up to at jimcuddy.com, uh, including a partnership with the Taz Winery that he has on the table, uh, and also info on his most recent release, Countrywide Soul. How about a, maybe a bottle of the Cuddy wine while you're listening to the Cuddy latest album? That would probably would be an evening well spent, I think. You can find Colin at colincrypts.com. Look for music by CNC Surf Factory on all streaming platforms. That is it for episode one of The Walrus Was Paul. I've been your host, Paul Romanuk. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast player. And because we're brand new, if you'd be kind enough to leave a review and a rating, that would be most appreciated. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle the underscore RomyCast, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T. That's the underscore RomyCast. That's for Twitter and Instagram. The podcast website is RomyCast.com. And we are also starting up a Facebook group page if you want to discuss the episodes. And you can find that with a search on Facebook. It is The Walrus Was Paul podcast. Do join me next time for episode two. My guest will be Bare Naked Ladies co-founder, singer-songwriter, Stephen Page. Stephen will be digging into uh, a bit of a curveball, not a Beatles album. Stephen didn't go the Beatles route. He is going to take a deep dive into the Paul McCartney classic solo record, Tug of War. That is next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Talk to you then. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Here we go. Hey, Sergeant. We just have a little less guitar in here, Father. Oh, that's no way. It's a bit that John finally got just after that, and we both of the two ones wanted to do what we wanted. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>